understanding is a step toward healing. There were a lot of things in Casper's childhood that just didn't make sense. Among them was something his father and godfather occasionally did for, well, fun. There was one town that was mainly black, and I I didn't really catch on to that until I was older. Like, I didn't realize this was old-school systemic racism. I didn't even know what systemic racism was. I was a kid, you know. But this town called Woodbine, New Jersey, they would go over there, they'd walk into the bar. Here, Casper interrupts his own story to describe them. These are big guys. My my biological dad was five foot nine, two hundred and thirty pounds, and he was rock solid. He was a big man. Casper says his godfather was even bigger, six foot ten and a half, and two hundred and fifty pounds. He's a big man. <laughs> the two were Vietnam veterans and lifelong friends, and according to Casper, they loved pushing people's buttons and proving how tough they were. They would walk into this one bar over there called PJs and open the door and be like, which one of you N-words wants to fight first? And they would just sit there and fight until they either got beat up or knocked everybody out in the bar. Despite this hateful behavior, in a striking parallel to Casper's relationship with No Good, the two men could also often be found hanging out with a friend who'd fought alongside Casper's father in Vietnam, a man who was black. And I cannot remember this man's name I only remember him from when I was a kid. Everybody used to call him Hands because his hands were the size of dinner plates. I mean, just ginormous hands. He served in the army with my father. And the three of them would get together and start drinking, and bad things would happen. According to the stories Casper's been told, if somebody called Hands the N-word, both his father and godfather would jump up and beat the life out of them. Not surprisingly, Casper had trouble making sense of these conflicting behaviors. They tried to explain to me, like, look, we don't give a fuck about race. You know, like, that's not our thing. But people want to take offense to it, so we're going to offend them. Fuck their feelings. And I was just like, as a little kid, I didn't understand that. And who would understand it? To make matters worse... His father's violent outbursts weren't confined to bars. There were times where he'd come home and we knew he'd be out drinking. You know, he he was at the bar and he'd come home and he'd literally just pick me up by the front of my shirt and throw me up against the fireplace to see if I would cry. And if I cried, I'd get a beating for not being tough enough to hold my tears back. These beatings gradually grew worse over time. Until one day, in fourth grade, I got a C in math, and my dad put me in the hospital for two weeks. And of course, he got away with it because, well, he knew people. You know, he made some phone calls and never had to go to jail for that. But it did start a case with uh, CPS, which in New Jersey, it was called something different than it was Division of Youth and Family Services, um, DIFUS or something like that. The people at DIFUS decided to put Casper in foster care, which he hated. He says he felt like he was the one being punished, and he didn't understand why. All of this set the stage for just about the most chaotic childhood imaginable, which is what we'll hear about in this episode, 
along with how Casper has come to understand it all decades later. This is Hate No More, the story of one man's journey into and out of violent white supremacy. I'm Henry Rambo. You may be wondering where Casper's mother was in the midst of all this drama. And the answer is that much of the time, she just wasn't there. On multiple occasions, she disappeared without explanation. The first time Casper remembers this happening was when he was about four years old. His mother brought him and his sister to his aunt's house, the one who would later try to pray with him when he was in prison for homicide, and said she would be back in a few hours to pick them up. And, uh, yeah, she never came back. Um, I didn't see her again until I was eight. He says it was a few months later when his dad finally came to get them. So we stayed with my dad, just with him for a few months or whatever, and then my mom would, I don't know, call, you know, it talked about coming to visit us and everything, and of course, she never did. And then when I, right after my eighth birthday, um, her and my dad were back together again. They never told him what happened. This was because, as he says, they were an old-school family. You didn't tell kids anything they didn't need to know. You know, they were meant to be seen, not heard, that whole thing. You know, boys don't cry, you gotta be tough and all that. Of course, he still heard things. As some people told me she was in prison. Um, other people told me she was just out, you know, doing her thing and was a mess. I don't actually know, I never looked into it. So I really didn't know she was in jail, I guess. I just knew, hey, you know, mom's going to be away for a while. We need to just, you know, keep carrying on. Everybody's going to have to pick up mom's chores or whatever. She's not going to be here for a while. And so for most of his childhood, Casper lived with this big mystery surrounding his mother and her disappearances. It wasn't until much later that he learned she'd been addicted to heroin. When I found out, a lot of things started making sense. Um, there were things that happened when I was very little. Um, the police did a raid on our house one day, and my mom gave me a bag and told me, here, hold this, and I just stuffed it down my pants. I wasn't even in school yet, so I had to be like four years old. And I had forgotten all about this until people started telling me about my mom getting arrested for heroin and stuff, and I'm like, yeah, I remember the cops coming to the house that day. You know, I wonder what was in that bag. You know, I to this day, I don't know what it was, but it was obviously something she didn't want the cops to find. With all of this going on, it may come as no surprise that, in his words, I was a hellraiser from kindergarten on up. The reason seems clear to Casper in hindsight. He says, at the risk of stating the obvious, I think a lot of it had to do with you know, my mom and dad going through the stuff they were going through. Um, I didn't understand what was going on. I just knew, you know, my mom took off. Didn't see, see her, didn't hear from her, nothing. My dad was drinking, you know, smacking me around all the time. Like, I, I, was, I was the scapegoat in my family. You know, so I took the brunt of my dad's anger and stuff when he'd get drunk. And then Casper himself would get angry when he heard people talking about his mother. If it was adults doing the talking, there wasn't much he could do. 
I'd get pissed off and be like, hey, you know, I'll, I'll beat you up, you know, and they're like, whatever, you're a little kid, you don't understand things. And I'm like, well, that's my mom, don't talk about my mom. Even though she wasn't there, and I, you know, I was mad at her for not being there, she was still my mom. But when other kids talked about her, he didn't hesitate to start fighting. I'd go to school or whatever, and, you know, kids would say something like, oh, yeah, you know, his mom's a bum or, you know, his mom's a, a scumbag or whatever. These are kids my size, my age. And I wouldn't speak to them like I'd speak to the adults and tell them, hey, don't talk about my mom. I'd just walk up, bam, you know, crack them dead in the mouth. <laughs> and I started getting suspensions. He says this happened a lot, but in spite of the suspensions, he still managed to do well academically. Even though I would get suspended, I'd come back, I'd make up all the schoolwork plus the extra credit, and they're like, we still got to pass this kid. Things went on like that for years. The abuse at home, the fighting at school. And then, when Casper was 11, the violence reached a terrifying new level. His sister, who was 13 at the time, got invited to a party that was being thrown by a bunch of high school kids in the woods. But this party was no place for a 13-year-old, much less 11-year-old Casper. They're all out there drinking, smoking weed, doing whatever, you know. Casper knew he wasn't welcome there. But if his sister was going to go, he was determined to go as well. So here I come, riding my little 60cc Yamaha dirt bike through the freaking woods in the middle of the night. <laughs> I show up at this freaking pit party and I'm going around, I'm snatching beers. You know, people are turning their head, I'm snatching a beer off somebody's truck, walking around with a beer. When his sister saw him, she got angry and told him to go home. But he didn't listen. He just stayed and watched as she hung out with all these older kids. She sat with this guy, um, I don't know, Tommy something or other, but she's sitting there talking to this kid, and he's older. He's like, I don't know, 15 or 16, something like that. And I guess he asked her, you know, something he shouldn't have. My sister starts telling him, you're fucking disgusting, you know, get away from me. And she pushed him, and he smacked her, like not real hard but he smacked her, and I saw it. So I dropped his beer, and I start walking over there, and I'm like, hey, that's my sister. And he's like, so what? I said, you smacked her again. I'll cut your fucking heart out. And he just looks at me. He was like, really, little kid? You know, and I'm like, go ahead, try it. And he turned, and he smacked her again. When he turned back around, I already had the knife in my hand, and I was coming at him. I asked where he got the knife, and he says that like every boy that age at the time, he carried a pocket knife wherever he went. And so he had it ready. And I stabbed him right in the center of his chest. And I, I had it so my hand was turning like this, and I was getting ready to yank down on it and try and literally cut a circle in his chest. He shows me the motion he was planning to use to cut that circle. He didn't get very far, though. Almost immediately, one of his cousins and another kid jumped on him. And they're holding my hand there. They're like, don't pull it out, don't pull it out. And I told my cousin, I said, I'm not going to. I'm going to cut his heart out. And he was like, you're fucking nuts. Like, let go of the fucking knife. Fortunately, Casper was no match for these older boys. They finally squeezed my wrist hard enough to make me let go of the knife. And 
you know, pulled me off of this guy. Cops show up, an ambulance shows up, you know, and the cops are looking at me and they're like, this kid did this? Like, seriously? He did this. And they're like, he fucking stabbed him, said he was going to kill him. (laughs) So they arrested me. It's hard to imagine the police putting an 11-year-old in a holding cell, but that's what he says happened. Yeah, I sat in a police station for a few hours, and then they took me to juvenile detention center in Bridgeton, New Jersey. And the judge gave me 18 months in Jamesburg School for Boys. Casper says that after the first six months, they began letting him come home for weekends. And then a short time later, he was allowed to stay home for a week or two at a stretch, during which time he went to alternative school. There was an advantage to it. At both places, whether I was in an alternative school or sitting at Jamesburg, I was allowed to work at my own pace. So I was just cranking shit out. And here, I was getting bumped up through a grade and didn't even know it. You know, all I knew is they were like, hey, you got to take this test. Yeah, all right. And I take the freaking test. Well, that was the test to move me from, you know, seventh grade up to eighth grade. Never even knew it. Focusing on schoolwork was good for him, and he was beginning to settle down. But then, in his words, Shit went haywire with my parents again. Casper doesn't know exactly what happened, but I found that his father had an aggravated assault conviction at the time that may have had something to do with it. In any case, Casper says his parents lost custody of him, and he ended up in foster care yet again. And if he wasn't already a nightmare child, he became one now. So I go to live with this family. And, oh man, I, I drove these people nuts for no other reason than I didn't want to be there. They were great people. You know, um, they really tried to take care of me and let me know, hey, you know, you're safe here. And I'm like, yeah, I don't care. I hate you people. Don't speak to me. And they're like, you just met us. (laughs) And I was like, I don't care. I don't want to be here. I'm not going to stay here. His first night there, he stayed up and waited for everyone in the family to fall asleep. And then... Out the door I went, you know. Um, Yeah, stayed out all freaking night. They had the cops looking for me. They were calling hospitals, everything else. You know, they had no idea where I was. I took off. I went back down to Wildwood. I was sitting out on the beach all night, just chilling. <laughs> you know, and these people are like, you can't do that. Like, you you can't just disappear all night. And I'm like, I'm going to do whatever I want. If you don't like it, don't keep me here. Yeah, I was, I was fucking horrible. It was only a week before school started when he moved in with this family, and they enrolled him in the local public school, where he didn't even last a day. A couple of these kids that were in this school know me from when I got in trouble stabbing this guy over my sister. And they're like, aren't you the guy that that stabbed that kid, you know, at Dickie's Pond or whatever? I said, yeah. It turned out that the little brother of the boy Casper had stabbed was also at this school. And when he learned that Casper was the one who'd stabbed his brother, he threatened him. Casper says he didn't wait to see if the kid would make good on his threat. He just picked up a desk and smashed it over the kid's head. They take me down to the principal's office and everything. They're like, we ought to call the police. Like, you just smashed somebody's head in with a desk. You know, what is the matter with you? 
And I told this principal flat out, I'm like, if you don't get out of my face, I'm going to smash you upside the head. And he leaned into me and I just hit him with an uppercut right in the chin. That was it. Threw me out of school. Expelled on my first day in Upper Township schools. <laughs> the stunt didn't just get him expelled from school. It, it, the foster family was like, that's it. We've had enough. This kid's only been here a couple of weeks. He already beat up you know, one of our, our kids. Now he's getting expelled from school. Get him out of here. We're done. The people at Dyfus now had to find him another home and another school. And they called his father to involve him in the process. Even though, you know, we weren't living with him, he did have visitation rights and everything else. And I guess he was taking parenting classes or something, trying to get custody back. So they let him know what was going on. My dad tells him, I can put him in private school. Don't worry about it. I'll pay for it. The next thing Casper knew, he was enrolled at a Catholic school called St. Raymond's. And his father was brought in to have a talk with him. So they set up a visit, had me sit down and talk to my dad. And he's like, listen, you have to do this just for a while. I know you're not happy, but you have to do this. I'm working on it. I'm getting better. I'm not drinking or anything. I I guess he went to the veterans hospital for detox or whatever, got sober for a little while. You know, he's like, just give me a couple of months. Don't do anything stupid. That proved to be too much to ask. One day at St. Raymond's, Casper says he was sitting at a desk that had writing all over it, and one of the nuns suddenly noticed the writing. Well, she comes walking over with a spray bottle and a roll of freaking paper towels and tell me, you need to clean your desk. And I'm like, I didn't put that on there. She was like, whatever, it's your desk. You need to clean it. And he says he did, perhaps with a lot more cleaning fluid and paper towels than necessary. And when he was done... He wadded up the soaked paper towels and, on his way out of the classroom, threw them as hard as he could in the nun's face. So that was it. Expulsion number two. <laughs> My dad's flipping out. The caseworker's flipping out. The judge is flipping out. He was like, you know, technically you're still on probation for stabbing this kid. I can send you back to jail. And I'm like, whatever. And he just looked at me and he goes, did you just tell me whatever? And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And he's like, so why shouldn't I send you to jail? I was like, because it's not going to change anything. I'm going to do what I want until you send me home. You know, he was like, I cannot do that. My hands are tied. Casper says that his caseworker and juvenile advocate lobbied for him to get counseling. And they ended up putting him in something called the Cape May County Day Program. Which was alternative school for alternative school. Surprisingly, Casper liked it. This program was pretty neat because they never have any more than 20 kids at a time. And these people are like, okay, so we try and do schoolwork, you know, these certain hours. And then we have like art therapy, which I liked. That was cool because I'm into artwork and all this other stuff. It was a sort of last resort program, something you supposedly couldn't get kicked out of. And Casper did well there, for a while. But then a new kid joined the program that Casper didn't get along with, and they got into a fight. And when one of the counselors tried to intervene, Casper assaulted him, too. So I go back to court. The judge is like, 
you are the first person in history to ever get thrown out of this program. It's been running for 15 years. <laughs> Exasperated, Casper's father intervened again and found another private school that was willing to take him. He gets me into Cape May County Christian Academy. You know, it's not Catholic, it's non-denominational, you know, Christian Academy, whatever. This is where I first started getting introduced to people from Joyful Noise, though, was at this Christian Academy. Again, things seemed to be getting better for a while. There was a girl he liked there. He started making friends, and he was sharing his interests with them. But one of those interests was fighting. Casper says that one of the teachers noticed this and took him aside. He told me, he was like, hey, listen, you know, this, this isn't Catholic school, but it is still Christian school. You know, I don't want you talking to other students outside about fighting. I don't want you showing people how to fight or anything like that. And I'm like, I'm not hurting anybody. According to Casper, the teacher replied that teaching violence was hurtful. And then Casper hit him. We go back in front of the judge. The judge is like, I I can't with you anymore. Like, I'm done. And that seemed to be the end of it. With four expulsions under his belt all resulting from acts of violence, Casper was sent back to the juvenile detention center. But the people at Dyfus weren't done with him just yet, and they got him placed in something called Vision Quest. This was a program that attempted to rehabilitate troubled youth by putting them to work in wilderness camps, cross-country wagon trains, and sailing expeditions. They drive me down there, they put me in this program, and they tell me you know, that this is a wagon train, and whenever they stop, you know, for the night or whatever, they make camp and put up these tents and everything and pretty much just sleep out in fucking woods and shit. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not doing this. You know, and they're like, well, you don't have a choice. You're here. They had a point. Out in the wilderness, it seemed like there was nowhere for him to go. So, grudgingly, he did what they told him to do. But as the wagon train approached Virginia, where his father was living at the time, he hatched a plan to get kicked out. So I waited until we got down to Virginia and told other people in the program with me, I was like, you know, I'm getting thrown out of here tomorrow, right? And they're like, yeah, people don't get thrown out of here. I was like, I've heard that before. So uh, about, I don't know, middle of the night, I want to say probably like 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, I decided I was going to, you know, cruise on over to this one little town that I saw through the woods and uh, I went into a little Piggly Wiggly convenience store. And it, now this is back in the day. You could still buy cigarettes and shit like that when you were a kid. You know, nobody said nothing to you. So I went in there. I bought a pack of Marlboros and a lighter. And I went back up there to the campsite. And I start setting one of their wagons on fire. <laughs> and they threw my ass out. He says the authorities in Virginia called the authorities in New Jersey, who called his father back in Virginia, who then had to drive out to the town where they'd picked him up and bail him out. He's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? (laughs) Seriously. And I'm like, I told him I don't want to be here. If I can't come live with you, I'm going to keep doing shit. And he was like, fine, you know, we're done at this point. I, I can't take this anymore. And I'm like, I haven't done anything to you. And he was like, every time you do some stupid shit, you do something to me. 
His father's next and last idea was military school. As an army veteran, he still had some connections, and he was able to secure Casper a spot at Hargrave Military Academy in Virginia. Casper says that when his father dropped him off, he said, Welcome home. Try and get thrown out of here. And I did. I, I tried to get thrown out of there. Yeah, no, they weren't having it. Every time I did something even worse, they were like, cool, you like making things difficult. We're all veterans. We like difficult. I was just like, oh, fuck. (laughs) So after a couple of months, I decided these fucking psychos are not going to get rid of me. Like they laugh at this shit and come up with even more insane ideas to make me fucking work this off. Fuck it. You know, can't beat them, join them. And I started, you know, doing what I had to do. And I actually did very well. I I excelled at that school. Um, yeah, I owe them a lot. In just telling the story, Casper seems to undergo a metamorphosis right in front of me. I learned a lot about myself, too, that I didn't have to do extreme shit to get people to realize what was going on. You know, they actually sat down and tried to talk to me and not just talk at me. It was different at Hargrave. They were like, I get that, you know. My dad's a fucking piece of shit drunk, you know. I understand exactly where you're coming from. And I actually had conversations with these people. And, you know, they gave me their ideas on how they deal with shit, not on how some book says to deal with it. And that really helped a lot. I asked Casper whether he thinks it would have worked if they'd put him in Hargrave right from the beginning, or if it was necessary for him to go through all those things in order to arrive at a point where he could be reached. I think if they would have been honest with me and told me why this was happening, if they had told me my mother was in prison for being a fucking junkie and selling dope to people, and that I couldn't go live with my dad because... Not only was he an alcoholic, he was dying of cancer, and I didn't know that. If people would have told me what was happening, just been honest with me, I might have been okay. I might have stayed with that first foster family and never gotten any trouble. But as it was, he didn't hear these things until much later. And in the decades since then, he's learned even more. Things that have completely changed his perspective on his childhood and the people in his life. Most notably, his father. Man, um, some of the things that I've heard since he died, you know, I don't know how people live with that. I ask him to give an example, and he tells me about one of his uncles, his father's younger brother, whom Casper never got to meet. Him and my dad went under the buddy program to go to Vietnam. And my dad was about 15 feet away from him and watched him pretty much get evaporated by a rocket. You know, um, this is his, his kid brother. You know, he just watched him go up in a fucking mist. This was just one of many such stories. His best friend, they had a scam that they were running 
on some of the guys over in Vietnam. They had a, a box of uh, grenades that didn't have the primers or anything in them. Casper says they would go up to guys and say, I bet you a week's pay I can pull the pin on a grenade and hold it against my head for 15 seconds. You know, guys were like, get the fuck out of here, you're nuts, you know. They'd fucking pull the pin and hold it there, you know. Nothing would happen, you know, and they'd be like, oh, you motherfuckers, you know, you got us, you got us, you know. And that was their thing. Well, we didn't tell you you couldn't look at the grenade before we did it. They were having a great time with this routine. But then one of the people they'd scammed put a live grenade in the box when they weren't looking. And my dad's best friend fucking picked that grenade. He pulled the fucking pin, held it next to his head and blew his fucking head off. You know, and my dad was right there watching it. I I think my dad always blamed himself for that. The story that affects Casper most deeply, though, is one his father wrote about in a poem. And it talks about being in a firefight and there's fires all through the jungle and everything and a young boy pops up out of the ground and his rifle jammed got a a stovepipe and according to the poem my dad shot him clean in the face you know blew his brains out And it said, the only thing I felt when I pulled the trigger was the pull of the trigger. You know, and it's like, damn, you know. And it, I don't know, I I think in the poem it says something about it's a nine-year-old boy, you know, with a rifle or something like that. I don't know, I have to find that poem again. But it's like, holy fuck, you know, so them stories are true. Like, you know, my dad's pretty much telling me that he shot a little kid, you know, like, holy fuck, man. You know, I've done some serious shit in my time, but I, I don't know how I would feel about myself killing a kid. That's deep. Hearing these things has given Casper insight into the trauma that made his father the man he was. And in addition to that, he now feels like he better understands his father's motives as well. I think even... Even when he was being abusive, he was trying to make me better than him. And I didn't realize that, you know, I mean, he could have did it a lot better. You know, there are better ways to do that. But um, he knew he was tough ass, you know, there's no doubt about it. He knew he was tougher than the average person bigger, stronger, knew how to fight better. But I think he still wanted me to be even better than that. He wanted me to be even stronger than that. And he just didn't have the the skills to teach me that. You know, he, he used what he knew. I asked Casper what he would say to his father now if he could see him one more time and tell him just one thing. He barely hesitates before answering. I understand now. I don't know, I think if I could see him one more time, he'd be really proud of me. <laughs> yeah. And when I say that, that I understand now, it's not just everything he tried to teach me. It's everything he did. Like, I'm not justifying 
the things he did because he did a lot of fucked up shit, but I understand. Perhaps something similar could be said about Casper himself. Nothing justifies the things he did as a white supremacist, but knowing what he went through, the forces that shaped him in his childhood and beyond, might make it possible to understand. Casper still has a lot of pain. He told me that after our interviews, he would sometimes turn off the lights in his workshop and just cry for a while. I found myself hoping that telling his story might be therapeutic for him. That maybe just as he's come to understand his father's mistakes, he can also understand his own, come to terms with them, and find some measure of healing. I hold a similar hope for us as a society. That as we begin to understand our mistakes, both past and present, we can also begin to heal. And maybe Casper's story can play a part in that. I've heard Casper wonder aloud how much damage he did through his involvement in the white supremacy movement. And this suggests to me that he yearns for redemption, that he hopes, in the end, to have done more good than harm with his life. And that raises the question, how much redemption can there be for people who have devoted their lives to hate? We'll hear more about that next time on Hate No More. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment right now, yes, now, to rate it, review it, and share it. To support us and get immediate ad-free access to all episodes, go to patreon.com slash hate no more or click on the link in the show notes. Hate No More was written and produced by me, Henry Rambo. Sound design was provided by Michael Parkhurst at Nostalgic Innovations. Special thanks to my wife and to Ryan, Allison, George, and, of course, Casper. Finally, there's more than enough outrage and hate in the world already. If you log onto social media at all today... Instead of sharing what upsets you, do what you can to make kindness and empathy go viral. We all need to play a higher game. And with that, thank you for listening.